Welcome to This Much I Learn, Marketing Week's monthly podcast in which we invite the great and good in marketing and beyond to impart their wisdom and perspective on marketing matters. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week, and I am your host for this episode. Our guest today is Professor Roger Martin, academic, author, consultant to CEOs at some of the world's most renowned marketing organisations and one of the world's most influential thought leaders on strategy, leadership and marketing, receiving various accolades over several years for his insight. His book, Playing to Win, which he co-wrote with former P&G CEO A.G. Laffley, has become a blueprint for strategic excellence, stripping away much of the complexity people thought necessary when setting strategy, reducing it down to five choices companies must make. His work isn't without controversy, choosing, as he often does, to challenge conventional wisdom in his books and articles for the likes of Harvard Business Review and New York Times. Professor Martin, welcome to This Much I Learned. It's great to be here with you, Russell. Now, I, uh, great to have you. I mentioned in my introduction uh, that some, anyway, have referred to your work as provocative. I've seen that adjective used a couple of times. Do you see your work, your job, to be provocative, to challenge received wisdom? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. Um, I, I think there are many models out there in use in business that aren't helpful to the user of the model. And so some of the things I say are provocative in that I say the model that you've been using to make these kind of choices right, isn't helping you. It's fundamentally flawed. And often they don't like that much because they've been using it for uh, a long time. Uh, so, uh, so it is provocative in that in that sense. I don't sort of intend to provoke, but I I can't stand people using models that produce an outcome other than what they want, and then they just keep using it over and over. So it's it's not hyperbole. It's uh, it's more challenging. Asking people why why do you do it that way? Why do you do it that yeah. way? Yeah. So I say, I say, you know, to all the people who spend all their uh, waking moments designing monetary incentive compensation systems, I say, do you realize that there still hasn't been any study done that demonstrates a positive correlation between incentive monetary compensation and entity like company firm performance? And they're like, that's the way that's always been done. Yeah, yeah. They say, but but it works. And and I say, wouldn't you wouldn't you kind of want some demonstration, given that at least hundreds of millions of person hours, if not billions of person hours, are spent a year on either designing incentive compensation uh, systems, running incentive compensation to compensating on the basis of your incentive compensation? Wouldn't you wouldn't you just want something? That would uh, that would demonstrate that I can, I can give you lots and lots of data to show how much it can screw up a company, um, but you're still spending all the time on it. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, that, it's that kind of thing. And people people don't like me saying that. They don't like me saying that uh, that stock based compensation does not align the interests of shareholders and managers, it disaligns the interests of managers and shareholders. So yeah, I, get, I, I do a lot of that. Um, incentive-based uh, remuneration uh, definitely messed up uh, in the 
investment banking sector in the entire category, entire countries uh, during the financial crash. So yes, there has to absolutely. be a better way. I mean, just dwelling on that for a moment, what, what is an alternative if you, were, if you were to propose one or indeed have you proposed one to an incentive based? I think either your incentive uh, for doing a good job is that you get to keep your job and move forward and up in the organization, right? So if, if you're a salesperson and, and I expect a salesperson at your level to sell, I don't know, a million dollars of stuff, whatever the stuff is uh, per year, I should pay you a good, uh, a fair uh, compensation for that. Uh, and if you get less than a million, we have to have a conversation about why. Uh, and if others could, uh, of your level could make the million, uh, kind of what it is we're going to change so that next year you're able to accomplish that. If you sell a million, uh, I would be inclined to say, well, that's great. Maybe we can do a million and a quarter next, next year. And people who do a million and a quarter, their salary level is this. So we'll pay you a, a higher salary. Um, so that to me is the best incentive compensation, right? Is doing the job that you were given. Uh, and, and then if you do that, the sky's the limit, uh, for the future. One of the things that has raised eyebrows that you've asserted is that marketing and strategy are the same thing. I'm yeah. quoting from a, a medium uh, article that you wrote. Um, I don't think it was too long ago. Uh, I quote, during the late 20th century, marketing and strategy began the process of converging and now they are indistinguishable. Why is that? I'm surprised how controversial that is. It's just, it just is. Uh, nobody can give me a good uh, uh, description of how they are they are different, but essentially, uh, kind of the world of strategy emerged. Business strategy emerged out of the world of military strategy, right? And in military strategy, historically, really the two things that you worried about were us, you know, our capabilities, and the competition, right? When, like, if you're Ukraine and Russia is in, in invading you, you don't pull the, the customers, Ukrainian citizens, and say, shall we just sit here or shall we defend ourselves? You, you, you have imperatives to do it. So you don't spend much time on the customer. In fact, none, virtually none. Uh, and so that's how strategy started. Strategy started obsessed and and Bruce Henderson's the father of of business strategy the founder of Boston Consulting Group in 1963 uh, and if you look at his early models they had nothing explicitly to do with the customer but they had things to do with us the company and our competitor you should price ahead of the learning curve so that you get more cumulative volume than your competitor so you will always have lower cost so that you will always be able to sell uh, at a lower lower price and then you will continue to have more cumulative volume da -da, you win there's two variables uh, in the equation um, and marketing I would argue grew up mainly obsessed about the company and the customer 
let's go figure out what the customer wants uh, and, and let, let's figure out what's value for them and then let's do the four P's, which are all about customer and, and, uh, and, uh, and us. And I know this because I was working with one of the world's, you know, absolutely top-notch marketing, marketing firms in the, in the 80s. I started working with Procter & Gamble in 1986. Uh, and um, and they were in, they were indicative of uh, of that in in 1986, that, which is they obsessed about two things: what we can do for the customer, what we can do for the customer. And it wasn't as though the competition wasn't there at all, but it wasn't sort of ingrained in the marketing mix and, and the and the thoughts. But obviously, to strategists, and this this was Mike Porter's. Uh, contribution to the to the world of strategy, where he said, "Oh, there's another strategy other than cost leadership. It's called differentiation. This means understanding the customer so well that you can create some value for that customer." And he essentially expanded strategy to be there's stuff about the company and your capabilities. There's stuff about competitors and what they can do uh, and and how they will compete against you. And there's something about the customer about how to understand what they need. You put those three together to to do uh, strategy, and sure enough. In the late 20th century, I, I think um, marketing departments and the and marketing started to pay way more attention to to uh, competition. As soon as marketing started paying attention to competition, so it was about company competitors uh, and customers, and strategists started paying attention to customers, so it was customers, company, and um, competitors. You're covering the same territory. You're making a set of decisions that take the company capabilities and deploy them against serving customers in a way that beats competitors. Okay, so what's different about the two? And then people say, oh, but in marketing they plan ad campaigns and in, and in strategy they do strategic plans and M&A and all of that stuff. And I say, oh, go, you know, make, make silly nuanced arguments about, about the fringes of the two. The question is, what if strategy is doing its job right is left for marketing the answer is not much what if marketing does its job right is left for strategy not much so why do you have two faculties in every business school in the face of planet two functions you don't need them so how does this net out then you just don't have strategists anymore or i suppose the flip side of that is you don't have marketers now we know we've got marketers otherwise editor of marketing week wouldn't have much to do you could be a strategy magazine just picking up on what you were saying there about some of the counter arguments that you've heard uh, and people sort of talking about advertising and, and that being obviously their job and part of the job of marketers that's mainly or, or actually exclusively that's a tactical pursuit uh, is 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 advertising and there is a school of thought uh, amongst many people who are critical of modern marketing and modern marketers, that marketers have become very ta tactical in nature and perhaps less credible. I mean, is that something that you recognize? Um, and if so, is that hurtful to the influence and credibility of modern marketers? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I see, I see lots of that. I mean, uh, the, the, the practice of marketing strategy, whatever the intersection of the two is not is not great out in the world. So most people in strategy produce 
strategic plans. They don't actually produce strategy. There's probably 10% of strategy that's worth having. And, and, uh, and you're right, marketers spend their time, you know, planning out performance marketing uh, kind of campaigns to get more, more uh, clicks to too great an extent. So I don't, uh, I think both the strategy and marketing fields are, are not exemplary performers uh, these days. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's hurting companies. I mean, what, what, what would you identify in marketers uh, that they're not doing? Uh, as I say, I've, I've, well, I've been at Marketing Week for well, quite a few years, and I think one of the main topics of conversation in their most honest uh, moments that I've had with marketers is that they don't have much influence. They're not seen by their CEOs, by their CFOs as equal peers. Uh, they're seen as executors of their strategy as opposed to uh, right there in the driving seat uh, to call back to some of the things we talked about. I mean, what, what can they do to be more influential if, uh, if you were facing a group of senior marketers? asking that question, what would be the key things that you would say to them? You have to take the perspective of the CEO, right? So often other people, I find that in the modern big global company, uh, CEOs are kind of lonely people, um, especially let's just talk about publicly traded ones. Uh, now, privately held ones are a little bit, a little bit different because they don't have this big capital market thing. But what you've got is the capital market, right, interacting with the CEO and CFO and often hardly anybody, anybody else in the organization. And there's a stock price for the, for the company. And that stock price for successful companies is much higher per share than the book price Right? So it could be multiple like Google or Facebook or five or ten times uh, book price. The capital markets are only interested in earning a return on the market price of the stock. So if the stock is 100 and book value is 20, right, they'll say, I want you to earn a return on the 100. Right? I'd like to make a 10% return on the 100. I'd like, I'd like this to be 110 uh, kind of uh, uh, next year. Um, and so they'll beat the CEO up about that. Internally, all the measurement systems tend to be, are we making good return on our 20, right? And so if you, if you make a, a 50% return on your $20 uh, uh, share, uh, you've earned a 10% return on, the, on, the, on your market uh, price. So most people inside say are we are we doing decently enough against our our kind of internal measures and the ceo is getting beaten up when the people inside declare victory right uh but the, the capital markets are saying no you lazy slobs uh, you aren't you aren't uh, working for us so if you want to have credibility with the CEO, you've got to empathize with the CEO's challenge and say, how can I help the CEO and CFO deliver against those, those expectations? What 
choices can I help him or her make that would that would do that uh, rather than to to whine and complain about not having a big enough budget uh, right oh, give me more money so that I can run some some budgets and you don't believe in brand marketing uh, and and so you're bad you know and and uh, or the CFO you know you're the you're the you know doctor no uh, and so, so you know you have to you have to help them with their problem or they will view you as part of the problem not part of the solution and marketing people are often viewed as part of the problem I got to keep them happy and they waste a bunch of my money uh, and uh, they can't tell me what it's doing uh, for me like do I agree with that no like I'm you know I'm 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 Right? I'm a marketing strategy guy, uh, but you know, you reap what you sow organizationally. So it's about understanding uh, the challenge that a CEO faces, as opposed to just learning the language of the boardroom. And I hear that expression a lot. That's uttered to me a lot. Uh, we use it a lot in copy, uh, the language of the boardroom. But of course, that language changes. It evolves mm -hmm. depending on circumstance. And that's what marketers yep. need to understand, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you, you have to understand the context of the, of the company and what it's uh, uh, attempting to do and help it in a meaningful way uh, accomplish that. Moving on to something that marketers are said to be in a unique position to oversee, that's uh, customer uh, and customer centricity. That's a phrase that has sort of crept in uh, to the marketing lexicon in, in the last five years or so, putting the customer at the heart of everything that you do. Now, it's really easily said, and it's even easier perhaps to put on a PowerPoint presentation to show that you are uh, looking after the interest and serving the needs of your customer. But where do you see companies perhaps going wrong in this regard, particularly in a, a data age? And uh, what would be your advice uh, to making sure you are truly customer centric and you don't just say that you are? Well, it, it's to have um, a clear view of what you're attempting to accomplish with the customer. Um, so I think you can talk about being customer centric, but if you, if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish for that, it, you're not going to be able to be customer centric and coordinate everything around something that's uh, that's very fuzzy. Um, and I've I've come to believe that you've got to organize around a clear promise to the customer, uh, and you have to be able to, as a company, say to yourself, "We feel comfortable making this." promise to the customer because we'll deliver on it and so when we design the product it's or service uh, doesn't matter it's got to it's got to embody a promise to the customer when we interact with the customer it's got to help them understand that and and see it uh, uh, fulfilled uh, so uh, our salesforce has to has to do that our our ad copy uh, has to do that so if you can have this central view of this is the promise we are going to make to the customer, uh, then I think it's easier to be customer-centric. Uh, if you don't, if you just say, well, we're a great company, 
uh, we make the world smarter, we build a smarter planet, uh, you know, this is a fantastic new gizmo, whatever, all, all of those things. We're a good company. It's hard to coordinate and organize around that because what the heck does that mean? How would you know if we're building a smarter planet? How would we know that the planet is smarter next year than this year? And who cares? So you're not gonna. That's not gonna help you coordinate all the activities of of your company. Changing tack slightly, but kind of adjacent to that subject, I was interested in an article that you wrote uh, called "Strategy in a Hyperpolitical World." Mm-hmm. Uh, the assumption in the article anyway that business and politics can and even should be kept separate is no longer realistic um, why is that why can't they be kept separate well I, I just think you need customer cooperation for that to be the case right and if customers are no longer cooperating on that front then then they're not separate like the world evolves the way customers kind of want it to. Uh, And if a customer says, I care about what your political stance is on X, then those two worlds are connected, right? Um, And there's, in some sense, nothing nothing a company can uh, can do to that. And, And this creates a massive, massive challenge for the modern company. Um, and it creates the biggest challenge for companies that are broad-based, who want to who sell to a very large segment of society. So let's say you're a light beer manufacturer. Uh, you want to sell to all light beer drinkers, as many as possible, right? So, so as soon as customers create fissures in that broad market, right, then it's a challenge for you. If you're a niche player, right, and you'd like to sell light beer to a certain psychographic attitudinal segment, you're you're fine. You just you just say, well, what are the politics of of that segment and how can I appeal to the politics? But the broader you go, you know, the more of a coalition you need to put together, right, to earn what you what uh, share you want, right? It's just like a politician. They've got politicians do not have the luxury in, in, in democracies. Politicians do not have the luxury of appealing to mm, let's or at least in American style politics, where you don't have twenty seven parties. If it was Italy or or Israel, it would be a, a slightly different uh, kind of uh, story. But you kind of got to get fifty one percent. Uh, uh, of the populace to agree so that you have to make a bunch of compromises and put together a, a, a coalition. Companies aren't terribly used to that, uh, that idea. And, and off, often in putting together the coalition of light beer drinkers, um, it wasn't apparent right, that some of them saw the world politically differently than others uh, of them. Right? And yeah. so you could just say, 
we'll we'll make a light beer and we'll make light beer commercials ad copy that that sort of has this general appeal to this general uh, uh, segment um, and then and then somebody had the idea that well we could get a bigger chunk of this part of that bigger piece by appealing politically uh, to uh, to this chunk, mm. not considering the possibility that that would create in some of the other chunk a reaction, and that's a fissure, right? That's like that's a fissure in in that market that has been has been accentuated and exposed, and that's going to happen uh, more, uh, and it's going to happen in part because activists who don't like companies, don't like capitalism, will do it more aggressively yeah. and try to point out these fissures. So that's why it's a super tricky uh, kind of world that any broad-based company is going into these days. It is, and it's particularly challenging, I imagine anyway, from perhaps my crude understanding of US politics, uh, which has become perhaps less party political, less ideological, more about culture issues I and mean, we're seeing it a little bit here we're seeing it in other po uh, pockets of the world yep. it's particularly acute of an issue and um, just to take a step back though i think unless i've wildly misunderstood you you were actually talking about a specific example but for the benefit of everybody listening uh, you were talking about ab InBev uh, and their use of dylan milvaney the transgender influencer mm -hmm. uh, to promote bud light and uh, the conservative, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, boycott that ensued. I mean, and that had a big material, and it probably continued to have a big material impact on AB, AB InBev's uh, fortunes. Um, I mean, if you were retrospectively advising AB InBev about how to handle that, either before or after, I mean, is there any advice that you can offer them? Uh, sure. It, it would be to just ask the 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 basic customer question what does bud light mean to the the consumers you know of of that beverage and i think we would go and find it means some different things but there would be enough of a commonality across 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 that to have the substantial market share that it enjoyed and and then i would just said uh, you know, our ad copy should be consistent with what that uh, that general sense of what Bud Light means to me is. Um, and if we have ad copy that is inconsistent with that, even if uh, we think it's only directed to some of those people in the modern world, Right, there is no such thing as something directed only to some of the people that will stay that way, right? You know as well as I. You've been in the advertising business for a while. That that for a long time, uh, all American Hollywood stars uh, made all sorts of excess income doing incredibly cheesy commercials in Japan, like incredibly cheesy commercials in 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 Japan. That would have been sort of personally embarrassing to their uh, American audience, right? And and this went on for this went on for decades, right? Uh, because 
There's no way in the world anybody in America would ever see a cheesy Arnold Schwarzenegger or, or uh, kind of Clint Eastwood or, or whoever, Anne in Japan. Can you do that anymore? How long does it take to see that ad in the United States? <laughs> Ba-bang, right? Uh, like two seconds. Um, and so that's, that's the world we, uh, that we have now. So my, my, advi my advice would have been to do, well, if you're going to have a social media influencer campaign, uh, then just simply ask the question, is that consistent with the way the, the biggest chunk of your your Bud Light consumers, your customers, conceptualize uh, Bud Light? And the answer, I think, now definitively, quantitatively, obviously, is no. A, a, bunch, of them, a bunch of them thought that wasn't uh, uh, something that was consistent with their view of, uh, of Bud Light. Are, is that a meritorious view? Do I approve of that view or not? I am agnostic on that. All we know from the market share data is a bunch of people said, you have undermined my sense of what this beer that I'm drinking stands for. That'll happen more. I suppose some people will say uh, in response, and some people indeed have, is that brands have a voice and they have an opportunity because they have big media budgets uh, to use the voice and perhaps to use that voice for good. But this brings in a different flavor, I suppose, uh, uh, to what is an ongoing debate around brand purpose or corporate purpose, uh, yeah. that there are many people who are critical of it because uh, it, they would argue that it either misinterprets what consumers are thinking and expecting of you, or you are potentially guilty of overstretch and uh, being yeah. inauthentic because you can't actually yeah. uh, draw a line back to who you are and why you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it's I, I I think of it as somewhat differently. Like uh, you know, you're Warby Parker, right? And you build the brand based on. We give a pair of glasses away for uh, to a poor child, uh, a needy child in a developing uh, poor country, for every one you buy. That's having a purpose. That's making the world a better place, right? But you didn't. Uh, you're not Luxottica, right? That has a whole bunch of people who who the biggest for those who don't know the biggest glasses manufacturer or marketer in the in the world by far the the, the eight hundred If Luxottica, right, having got those consumers in a different way, tells those consumers, and now we are going to stand for I don't know, right, what whatever whatever it is, uh, whatever cause it is, and they and those consumers don't love that cause in fact maybe revile that that cause they've got a problem and that's because that's because the brand is right this big and that may appeal to only a fraction of it as opposed to warby parker who did it organically or patagonia who did it organically and all the customers right believe in the social uh, purpose so this is more of a challenge of retrofitting attempting to retrofit an existing large customer base into a political view right and I, and my view of that is is kind of 
good luck, uh, right? Uh, now, I would, I, I could say that that Paul Pullman did a really nice job of migrating uh, uh, Unilever when he became CEO of Unilever towards a we care more about the environment uh, kind of uh, view. But I think he picked a considerably less polarizing view than than he could have, right? Um, and I think he did it kind of deftly. He did it slowly but surely. Uh, he did it in a way that I think you know, made sense. He didn't say, fishing from the ocean is terrible. We must stop fishing, right? He said, no, 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 we're going to only fish from, from uh, certified uh, Marine Stewardship Council, certified fisheries that are certified sustainable, right? So, so it's sort of a little bit hard to say, I hate Unilever for fishing only from sustainable fisheries, right? Uh, as opposed to, you know, I used to get those fish sticks that I like and, and Unilever stopped manufacturing them because it, it doesn't believe in, in um, use of animal protein. That's going to be, I mean, you could take that stance, but that stance is going to, it's going to fragment, create fissures in your, uh, in your market. And you just, mm. and, you, and you can do it, but you have to be willing uh, to take the consequences. I mean, I suppose, yes, it's less contentious. Uh, there's very few people who will ever stand up and say, I do not believe in anybody in any circumstance in uh, helping the planet towards a more sustainable future. Uh, I, I suppose uh, when it comes to corporate purpose anyway, there are those, including a Marketing Week columnist, Mark Ritson, who said that purpose has got to cost you money. It's not purpose unless it's actually costing you in some way, shape or form, which I don't know enough about Unilever to know whether or not their commitment to sustainable practices is a drag on their operating profit. But uh, would you agree that uh, purpose to be authentic and true has to actually cost a company money? You know, I like Mark Ritson a lot. He's a great guy, uh, but I don't agree with him on that on that front. Respectfully, I mean, because I because I think he's terrific. I think it will cost you if you're not clever. This is not unlike. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of. I am a fan of uh, uh, MIT professor named Zainab Tan, who wrote this book called "The Good Job Strategy," that showed how if you uh, companies like Costco who pay more for their labor nothing even close to minimum wage, way more for, their, for their, their labor, where people would say, oh, if you really care about your workers, you'll pay them more because you care, and it'll come out of corporate profit. She says, uh, actually, no, they are way more profitable. than They're, they're, the, they're the idol of, of, of all retailers in America uh, kind of now because they're, they're more profitable, you know, better customer satisfaction da, 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 with the highest uh, kind of labor costs uh, in in the industry. So what I would say is that if you're going to do something on corporate purpose, right, I think you've got to do it cleverly, right? You've got to create a, a more clever system. Do I think Warby Parker is really suffering badly because of its corporate purpose? I don't think so. Like, I think a whole lot of people buy their glasses because they love that feeling. 
uh, same with uh, with Patagonia. Um, so, in in some sense, here's where I could I could see more eye to eye with Mark, right? Which is which is if you went from no purpose to purpose, right? Incorporating a purpose, you'll like slide back in terms of in terms of per, per, performance unless you do something that that rockets you farther ahead than you were were without it but that'll take that'll take thought if you do nothing but add purpose and this is what uh, what this professor Zainab Tan says if all you do is pay your workers more and change nothing else about your system so Costco has a whole different system right uh, just like Southwest Air- Airlines, people think, oh, it, it's a low-cost air c- carrier in the United States. Oh, it's low-cost because it pays its workers less. Nope, actually it pays them more. But it is more clever in figuring out how to need fewer labor hours per passenger seat mile so that you can pay higher price per labor hour and still be the low-cost uh, carrier. It's a requirement to be more clever. And so the price I think you have to pay for having a corporate purpose is you better darn well be more clever. And if you think you can have a corporate purpose and be no more clever and it'll all be fine, good luck. It's a nice way to put it. Let me move on to another hot button topic, AI. Uh, it's uh, it's a conversation that is full, well, most conversations, let me put it another way, are full of speculation and, and conjecture, but they tend to be, again, quite polarizing, either people who'll say it's just a toy, it won't have that much impact, get over yourself, uh, to it's going to change everything and it's probably going to make you or render you in your role redundant. I mean, What's the truth here, uh, Roger, when it comes to AI and perhaps strategy, uh, marketing strategy in particular? Sure. I tend to be an optimist, Russell. Uh, so, so the dystopian view does not sort of immediately come to mind to say, "Oh, wow, this is all this is all going to be all going to be negative." And I would argue that over the course of human history, like we should just—I think we should look at AI as, you know, the next interesting cool technology and we've had lots of those over the course of human endeavors uh and um and i think the technologies that have ended up having the most important impact on the world i think are ones that augmented humans and not substituted for them right so like one of the first great technologies in the world was fire Right? Why did it sort of take off and become a really big thing? Well, it's because you could cook things and eat more, more stuff, and and people could get uh, get better. It augmented humans. How about the wheel? Hmm, that augmented your ability to move stuff around. Did it substitute some? Yep. Instead of having six people who had to lift the the, the rocks, you rolled it with one person. So there's always going to be some, some uh, a substitute. Um, and so there have been technologies. You know, you you, you just give uh, you know uh, basic uh, computing, and and you can 
uh, kind of lay off a bunch of receivables clerks and 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 uh, do it uh, with a machine instead. Sure, there's some substitution, but was that earth shattering and changing? How about right the today's most important technology? It's the, this thing in my hand called a smartphone, of which there are five or six billion uh, in use now. Did that replace human beings? I don't think so. It augmented. You know, it augmented your ability to do things. You could get your email on the road now. You could get all access to all these apps apps now. So so for 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 me, I I always ask the question, um, how can this technology augment human beings? And if it can, I think it'll it'll have a bigger impact than if it is a pure substitution because what was the pushback on smartphones? Was there political pushback on smartphones? Was there personal pushback on smartphones? There's no like, hey, I want one of them uh, and I'm gonna use it more and when the new Apple comes out, I'm gonna buy it even though it's like really expensive, uh, but I, I, just, I just need it and want no pushback. It's sort of like, it, it, goes, it goes like that. So I think there's gonna be Way more pushback, and what you know? When was there pushback on technology? Machinery. We had luddites, right, who threw wrenches into it because they feared the the substitution. So, the smarter the smarter approach to AI is going to be how can it uh, how can it augment uh, human beings? And and it already does for me driving. Like I do like I do like the little warning sounds uh, that my car makes now, which my car the previous car did not make that when there's somebody too close in the lane that I'm going in, into that's AI, right? For sure. Right. And, and it's augmenting my abilities as a driver. It's not kind of replacing uh, replacing me. Now, if we have full level five autonomous vehicles, it'll replace drivers, but you know, that is coming super duper slowly because I'm not sure that we have a huge incentive to replace drivers, um, but augmenting them, making them more safe, making the job easier, I think that's that's great. So that's my that's my hope for for AI, and my bet is that there's going to be more of that than than replacement. But as with every technology, it will adjust the way people. It'll adjust what what uh, what value is, and I think those who are who are able to to kind of create the new, create new patterns, create new understandings, will do better than those who are running are secretly running something that is more akin to an algorithm. Right? I wrote about this once. I book about this once. Everything we know now in the world started out as, a, out as a mystery, right? How do you draw something kind of that looks like it has, it's like it really is, as opposed to Egyptian flat on a, on a, on a wall? That was a mystery. Uh, in due course, we create a heuristic. Ah, there's a vanishing point. There's a thing called perspective that you've got to take into account, right? In due course, we say, here's the algorithm, right? Actually, we can now code this into a program that 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 uh, that does the vanishing point essentially for uh, for you, and voila, uh, we can now in the second half of the twentieth century and onward, 
we can code that into, into software. So everything goes from mystery to heuristic to algorithm. And when it's an algorithm in the modern world, it gets, it gets uh, submitted to software. Uh, that's happening. And so if you're running an algorithm, you will be replaced. And you're already being re uh, uh, replaced. If you are running a heuristic, um, that's just, you can't code that. Um, and uh, if you're solving mysteries, you for sure uh, uh, can't do that. Now, the interesting thing about chat GPT, which everybody's all kind of uh, uh, in a tizzy about, uh, is it'll take the territory between heuristic and algorithm and say, I can replicate that. I'll just go out into the world and search a trillion kind of uh, instances of what word came after this word <clears throat> and plop that, plop that in and create something that's perfectly decent, perfectly decent. Uh, and so if you're doing perfectly decent writing, uh, chances are that will be tough for, uh, tough for you to compete uh, with. But if you're, if you're trying to write about something that hasn't been written about in that way before, ChatGPT can't do that. It just can't. And for anybody who knows how ChatGPT works, that is not how, that's not how it works. It doesn't think. It goes out and figures out the most, the most commonly used next word after that word. And that's the interesting thing here. If, um, if you are, if people are creating generic, easily copyable, copyable even work anyway, then perhaps generative AI can reproduce to the same standard and perhaps it's more efficient in doing so. But it's the, it, it's the stuff that excels, the stuff that can only be born out of frailty or imperfection or context or environment yeah. uh, that can't be replicated, or at least that's my take on it. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and you've in some sense made a, a Clay Christonian, <laughs> Christensonian argument, uh, right? I wouldn't Which know is, what that is, so I didn't do it deliberately. So, so Clay Christensen was uh, the late Clay Christensen who just passed his the disruptive innovation guy who's talked about low end disruption, right? Which is that for, for again, a kind of rebar, a low end not sheet metal for Volvos, uh, for rebar, uh, making it out of uh, scrap steel in mini mills was perfectly fine, right? And so that industry was disrupted from the low end uh, because you didn't need super high quality for that. And so he, he just warned companies of, of, of being wary of low end dis uh, uh, disruption what you just described was sort of low end disruption. Maybe it's not quite as good as a sort of a mediocre writer, but it's free. Uh, and so, and just like rebar isn't made from that, it's not as good as rebar made from, from uh, kind of virgin, uh, virgin steel uh, process rather than recycled. It's not as good, but <laughs> it's close. Uh, and, and when you're just ramming it through concrete uh, uh, to keep a building up, you know, it, it turns out that that's more than enough reinforcement that uh, than you need. So there will be that low end disruption where 
it doesn't the you know, the niceties don't matter. Changing tact completely. Uh, I go back. We touched upon it earlier to leadership and leadership uh, capability. You've worked with a lot of great leaders. You've written a mm -hmm. lot about leadership. If there was a couple of traits that you've identified that makes for a great leader, what would they be? I guess it's a couple a couple of things. One one is um, great leaders have to make decisions on the basis of a lot of disparate information, right? So you don't become a great leader by asking for kind of comprehensive market research and coming back with the market research to say, since it says, the survey of 10,000 customers says they like pink over red, uh, let's, let's do pink, right? Um, great leaders make decisions that are Boy, I saw this happen over here in this industry. I was talking to a customer over there. I saw this happening over here. My people are worried about this. All sorts of disparate information. So to be a great leader, you have to be an omnivore, right? Not a carnivore or an herbivore. You have to be an omnivore of information. Uh, what is one of the best sources of information? human beings. They're repositories of, of information. They're processors of it. So to be a great leader, you have to be good at listening to people and causing those people to use the best of their brains to provide the pieces of the puzzle that you need to make the most, the most kind of far-reaching, important decisions you make. So if your people don't like interacting with you, trust you. If you're mean to them, you're not gonna you're not gonna get get any of that. Uh, you're you're gonna have only a small piece of the the information tapestry that you need to make to make great decisions. So I'd say that's that's one. Um, and the second is you have to be somewhat deterministic. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, you have to have this view that says, gee, the way things are working, if we keep on this vector, it's all fine now, but they're doing this and customers are doing this. And in five years, I don't like the looks of that. But if I made a change now, even though it might not be awesome now, it'll put us in a better way, place five years. So you have to have this sense of determinism that, that says you can understand how they th these things happen. They will happen to you, right, unless you do something to make it happen to them instead of, instead of uh, us. And you have to have this, uh, this confidence that that gives you to make choices today that will put you in a better position tomorrow or the next day or 10 years, uh, years from, uh, from now. Um, and I, and I would say those are the top two in order to make those decisions. You need the, the, the this most ornate tapestry of, of information and in insights to feed the decisions uh, in this de world that is more deterministic than it is random and chaotic, right? Uh, it's random and chaotic if you don't think about it. Uh, but if you think about it, you can think your way through it. Will you be right all the time? No. Uh, but can you be right 
Most of the time, yes. Steve Jobs is a perfect example of that. Had spectacular flops that were just total busts, including Lisa, right? Uh, the Cube, the Newton, like spectacular busts, epic busts, but those were a minority of, of busts. And some of those busts, the Newton essentially begot the iPhone in due course, the Lisa begot the Mac. Uh, and so a bust, yeah, it's not always an entirely a, a bust. So you can't go for perfection, but you have to be deterministic enough to say, no, no, there's a way for me to make decisions that will, that will prove fruitful for the organization which I am a leader am responsible for. Now, one final question I would ask you to be as uh, concise in your res- uh, response as you possibly can. Okay. Uh, for everybody listening who will predominantly be in the world of marketing, what's the one piece of advice, perhaps when thinking about strategy, that you would offer them? If, they, if they're only going to take away one thing from this conversation and indeed any thing that you've written or said previously, what would you like it to be? Well, I'll steal a Steve Jobsism. Think different, uh, right? Tack away, right? Um, you know, if you're if you're tacking toward uh, your competitor, the standard norms, the what whatever, the way of doing things, um, it's going to be harder to find something great. Ask yourself, can I tack away? Can I see the customer in a different light, in a different way than other people have? Can I see my own company in a different way, in a different light? Can I see the, my function in a different way? Just just tack away. Tack away, think different. Either are great pieces of advice from a professional life well lived. So thank you, Professor Roger Martin, for your insight, experience and thoughts on the world of marketing business and beyond today. And thank you to everybody that has listened from Roger and myself. Goodbye. Thanks you so much for having me.